Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Paul, we talk a lot about the new tech cold war between the U.S. and China. The front lines uh, may just be fiber. And joining us now is Professor Susan Crawford uh, of Harvard University, joining us in New York. She is the author of a new book, Fiber, the Coming Tech Revolution and Why America Might Miss It. So what is this coming tech revolution that you foresee? Well, imagine ubiquitous, unlimited, cheap data capacity throughout an entirely, uh, sort of an enormous market. And that's going to happen in China long before it happens here. And it would make possible all kinds of new jobs, new developments, new ways of making a living. China has actually planned now to connect 80% of their homes, this enormous market, to fiber optic. The U.S. has no such plan for a, a national upgrade. But hold on here. I think my cell phone works just fine. I get my movies downloaded quicker. I, all I hear about is the cable companies and the telephone companies say how much money they're spending upgrading their systems, their wire, you know, their infrastructure. Um, isn't that good enough? Well, it's like the people who said, I have one light bulb in my house. Isn't that fine? Who needs refrigeration? Who needs any more appliances? The whole country needs cheap, uh, ubiquitous fiber access in that last mile. Now, cable's happy, and they're a great American set of companies because they've built out their infrastructure. Their capex is going way down year after year. Meanwhile, data use is going up, and their profit margins are going up. So as an investment, terrific. But for the country's ability to compete on the world stage, not so great. All right, so let's let's dig into this. You're talking 5G, right? You're talking the idea of building out that infrastructure What's sort of the knock-on effect of not having a full-scale 5G infrastructure in place when it comes to operating businesses? Well, what 5G and fiber taken together, they're complementary. What they're going to make possible is human presence. You'll be able to work wherever you live rather than having to live where you work. You'll have eye contact with the people you're talking to. It'll be as if there's just a pane of glass between you and the rest of the world. We've never experienced that in the United States. And so imagine healthcare services at a distance that actually feel real, and education, and automated manufacturing, elder care, all kinds of new ways of living, especially in an era of climate change, that are going to be essential for the next millennium. So are we talking holograms? Are we talking yes. you know, screen? I mean, is that what? how does this sort of uh, material Again, try to imagine a pane of glass between you and the rest of the world. That it, There's so much data. It's like a 15-mile-wide pipe of water in comparison to the two inches we have now, going both directions. So all of your downloads were once somebody's upload. You're going to need to be able to be part of things uploading with a fantastic, basically unlimited connection. And that makes possible eye contact, which we've never had over our existing internet access networks. All right. So... AT&T, Verizon, Dish, they've all spent tens of billions of dollars on Spectrum. They're all in the very early stages of rolling out what they call 5G. Are you suggesting that without that fiber to the home last mile, it really won't be true 5G? I'm suggesting that 
you know, we may talk about China, China having a government-run network in developing countries, by the way, and not just in China. We'll have, a, in essence, a private government, which is Verizon and AT&T, providing their flavor of fully managed 5G services. What I'm talking about is the need for the country to have the, what, the equivalent of a street grid, like basic dark fiber all over the country that allows for lots of competing wireless providers, lots of 5G providers in rural and urban and poor and rich areas. And our current path is not going to get us there. So how much would that cost? That's not my trouble. <laughs> that's not my that's not my trouble. It, it, how much will it cost not to do it? This is, you know, how much did it cost to have a federal highway network? How much did it cost to have a transcontinental network? All right, so what are some of the costs to not having it? Oh my god. Uh, this next industrial revolution of very high capacity data flow back and forth symmetrical won't happen here. It'll happen in China and Japan and Korea and northern Europe, the places that actually have people working in this sandbox of new connectivity. So we, we may have been the place where the internet showed up in the first place, and we were leading the world in the first generation of internet technology, but we won't for this next generation. So in, in your book, Professor, you, you do highlight that there are some towns, some markets, some places in the U.S. where maybe, I guess, these local markets aren't waiting for maybe the federal government or a, a private telco to, to kind of really wire up their community like it needs to be wired about. What happened in those communities? There are actually about 800 of them across the country that have taken their destinies into their own hands. We saw the same story with electricity, uh, places that felt they were being squished by the equivalent of Comcast or Charter back in the early days, uh, decided to make sure that it was uh, utility providing basic uh, electricity services. Same thing's happening in places like Chattanooga, Louisville. San Francisco was on the road to doing this, and then Mayor Ed Lee died. And so the current mayor doesn't see it as her priority. Is this financed with a tax on the local citizens? It, you know, patient capital of any form could be a bond issue. It, it's a very sensible investment. It pays out until the sun explodes. You just have to wait for, let's say, a dozen years for your investment to come back. And private companies, it's not in their interest to do this. It's just not part of their profile. That's fine. Well, but this is exactly where I was going to go, which yeah. is if it is going to pay until the sun comes home, <laughs> uh, then why aren't the Comcast, why, why aren't the big cable companies doing it themselves? Because they're very happy. They, they suffer from neither oversight nor competition. They've made their capital expenditures. Now they just soak the network and they soak all of us. There's nothing bad about this. It's not evil. Unconstrained, though, a private company is never going to provide a utility at reasonable prices to everyone. It's just like, you know, we're not gonna rely on private companies for transit or for electricity or for water. It doesn't make any sense. So this sounds like a scenario, I would, you know, my background, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time looking at cable companies and tel telco companies, and I kind of know the history of how they invest and they think about returns. But, you know, my sense is this sounds like, when you talk about a national true metro uh, fiber to the home grid, this sounds like something that, the Comcast of the world and the charters of the world, they're just going to say, we're going to stick with what we have until the government wants to come in and do something. Is that kind of how you think it has to be, I guess, on this kind of scale when you equate it with the federal highway, you know, interstate highway system? We have always relied on private companies to provide us with telecommunications, but they've always been burdened with public obligations. Right now, there are no such obligations on those companies. And so what's happening is the entire country, including all American businesses, are paying enormous amounts of rent to about four companies for data connectivity. And so, of course, they're happy with the status quo. I don't blame them. But we fix this with electricity, and we can fix it with communications. 
And we, by the way, our telephone network originally was the envy of the world when it was first unveiled. And our basic unlit fiber grid should be the envy of the world, too. We should be looking at the rest of the world in the rearview mirror, and we're not. Professor Susan Crawford, thank you very much. Very interesting com uh, discussion. Of course, her new book, Fiber, The Coming Tech Revolution and Why America Might Miss It. Uh, Susan Crawford is a professor of law at Harvard University, based in Boston, obviously, but with us in our Bloom Bloomberg Interactive and Studios. Joining us now, Bill Barker, Portfolio Manager of the Motley Fool Small Mid-Cap Growth Fund. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start just with a day like today, when you see the NASDAQ down 1.5%, Dow down one, you know, about the same. Are you diving in? Are you buying? And if so, where are you seeing opportunities? Well, I think that the uh, opportunities that have popped up today, I guess Caterpillar is driving driving the news, but the uh, news isn't entirely unexpected. That is uh, a weakness from China uh, and, and the tariffs uh, affecting the cost for Caterpillar isn't much of a surprise. So I think that the companies that are less affected by that tend to be the less global operators. You're talking about the, the small cap companies having uh, more strength today, and, and I think that's understandable given that they're less affected by uh, by global concerns at the moment. So what, again, kind of what sectors are you diving into? Presumably, you know, hopefully you had some cash coming out at, uh, towards year end and you could probably start the year as you sat down with your team thinking about, okay, maybe we're licking our chops a little bit here. We've got some names that maybe are 20, 20, 30% cheaper. Where did you put money to work coming out of that uh, December swoon? Uh, well, we've been uh, putting money to work and looking more at the information tech space than anything else as it was hit the hardest uh, at, at the end of the year. And uh, taking money from more of the consumer staples sector, uh, where uh, there was a lot of strength last year, a couple things were up, uh, you know, 20, 30 percent in, in our fund that uh, it's, it's a little hard to understand why they, they were that strong, other than the fact that they they were less uh, less exposed to the volatility, uh, so I think that we're we're looking at the uh, some of the same names that we've looked at for a long time, and either tech or or sort of stealth tech companies that look to have a competitive advantage going on for five or ten years at least. Bill, when was the last time that you made a significant shift in your allocation? Uh, well, we tend to be buy and hold investors, so we don't. We don't make huge shifts based on um, temporary things, but we've steadily gone more into the tech space over the last 18 months. So, Bill, so we're, you know, we're kind of coming into a lot of consumer earnings coming in here for the fourth quarter earnings season. How do you, how do you feel about the consumer? You know, we, we, the U.S. economy seems to be, even at 2 or 2.5%, 2 a pretty solid place to be vis-a-vis uh, -vis some of the other uh, mar markets globally. How are you positioned on the consumer sector? Are you market weight or overweight or underweight? Well, we're uh, overweight on consumer discretionary, and uh, there are a lot of lot of things there where we think that the you know the domestic spend is still pretty attractive for for a number of, of sectors uh, in in the small and mid cap space, and we're also overweight in uh, uh, transportation at the moment. So. 
I think that uh, those are those are categories we continue to be uh, happy about. I think on the transportation space, there is some concern. I'd have to admit that uh, with a slowdown, a still healthy uh, U.S. economy, but a somewhat slowing uh, from the growth rate that it had in 2018, uh, that you're going to see some volatility in those, and that, that might provide uh, more opportunities, of course. Bill, what's your highest conviction bet for 2019? Well, for 2019, uh, what we've got, uh, our specific name that in our fund has the highest allocation is XPO Logistics, which is a company which has grown into a $17 billion revenue company from about a $400 million revenue uh, six, seven years ago. They've run into some weakness as a stock in the last really just four months. Uh, due to uh, one earnings uh, revi- earnings guidance revision uh, and also a short seller's report that, that impacted the stock. But uh, the stock has rebounded from the short seller's report. It continues to be uh, trading at the low end of what it's been at for the last uh, couple years. But uh, yeah. for a company that has managed to expand about 40 times its sales in, in seven years, we're, we're continue to be very confident in management there. Bill Barker, thank you so much for joining us. Bill Barker, Portfolio Manager at Motley Fool Asset Management, which oversees about $2.5 billion uh, in New York. Markets off uh, over about about 1.3%, continuing the volatility that we've seen over the last couple of months. And to help us try to dig down a little bit deeper in the market moves here, I would like to welcome Jeff Salt. Jeff is the uh, Managing Director and Chief Investment Strategist uh, for Raymond James. He's based in St. Petersburg, Florida, but fortunately for us, he is with us today in a Bloomberg Interactive Studios. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. So... Let's frame this a little bit. We have December and January. We have a huge downdraft in December. Rebound a little bit here in, in January. Coming into earnings, some uncertainty here. How are you positioning your, what is your advice to your clients as you go around New York this week, presumably to see your institutional investors? What are you telling them as to how they should be positioned given this volatility that we've seen? Well, you saw a selling climax back three days in a row back. It ended on December 24th, uh, about as steep a selling climax as I've seen in 48 years in this business. And we think that is the low. And we told people that the S&P should rally back up to 2600 to 2620. It overran that last week on the potential for a Chinese trade deal and the uh, cessation of the of the shutdown at least on a short-term basis uh but by my measurement uh, we have a proprietary way to measure how much internal energy is in the market uh the market's internal energy has been used up by that dash from 2346 to 2670 internal energy there's there's we have a proprietary way to measure how much energy is built up in the markets it doesn't tell us which way it's going to be released okay. but it but it, it tells you that if a move starts there is enough energy in the market that it can turn into a decent move so what are the components i'm sorry what are the components of energy i've never heard that term before and i've been doing this business for 30 some odd years that's so, proprietary i you know i, I don't tell it, people okay okay so it's proprietary to the point that you don't disclose anything no okay 
go. <laughs> well, I, I guess then how do you know that it's not going to be to the downside, especially given the fact that we have today the results from NVIDIA and Caterpillar casting a real pall over markets? We have long-term, intermediate-term, and short-term proprietary models. The long-term model flipped positive actually in October of 08, which is where most stocks bottom. 92.6% of stocks traded bottomed on October 10th. I've never of 08. I've never seen that. The markets went lower. The indices went lower into March of 09 because the financials kept going down, but the majority of stocks bottomed. Our intermediate and short-term indicators flip more often than the long-term. In fact, the short-term model flipped negative on October 2nd. Uh, and we told people that if you have speculative trading positions, you should sell them. We didn't do anything with, with long-term investment positions, but in a lot of cases, I wish I had. So which sectors now uh, are you more inclined to? Are you, you know, kind of putting at the top of your list when people say, hey, where should I be putting some money to work? I still like old tech, and I particularly like the two sectors that were so out of favor last year, energy and financials. They are cheap. The energy stocks are trading at the same valuation metrics as they were when crude oil was 26 bucks a barrel. What is old tech? Things like Intel. All right. So what do you think that investors are missing? Why do you think they're undervalued right now? I think they were chasing the, the new nifty 50, the FANG stocks, uh, and ignoring you know, some of the cheaper old technology names. Well, but why, especially if we see the slowdown in China is affecting a lot of companies more than people had previously expected, why, why do you think that there could be an upside surprise that we get this, this week? Because I still think earnings are going to do very well in this country. I think people are underinvested. Uh, cash levels had built up. Uh, we are short-term overbought. I was looking for a pullback to the 2500-2550 area. I'm not sure we'll get that, uh, but I'm not chasing stocks right here. So... How important are the macro issues out there to your outlook when we think about China and Brexit? Seems like those are some significant headwinds for the market. How do you factor that in uh, into your outlook? I don't think Brexit is that big a deal, and I don't think China is slowing that much. I mean, six plus percent GDP growth, sure, it's down from double digits where it was a few years ago, but it's still, I wish we had six percent GDP growth. Uh, I think the economy is, is good. Uh, I think earnings are going to continue to come in better than people expect. And I think there's way too much cash on the sidelines right here. So what do you think that uh, the S&P is going to return this year? We have a target of 2960. All right. And do you think, which do you think, which index do you think is going to perform best this year? I still like the small caps. The Russell 2000? Yeah. Why? I just, they, you get better growth out of those. There's a lot of names. If I was going to go back and manage money again, uh, I, I would deal with actually the micro caps where with very little research or no research coverage because that's where the mispriced pieces of paper are. So how dependent on your outlook is the Fed, you know, maybe uh, being a little bit dovish this year? I think the Fed is going to be dovish this year. We've gotten a couple of softer than expected economic figures. Um, I don't think that is, you know, the, the present situations index, which is always called a recession, is making new highs. There's, I don't see where these people come off talking about a recession this year or next. I just don't, I don't see it. All right, Jeff Sott, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Jeff Sott, with his uh, optimistic view on the U.S. equity markets, managing director and chief investment strategist focused on equity research for Raymond James, normally in St. Petersburg, Florida, but here uh, in the North, just for the excitement of the colds that we're about to get. 
Well, Caterpillar reported numbers this morning. They missed the numbers. They gave kind of a disappointing outlook. Um, you know, and the stock is trading down 8%, not surprisingly. So let's uh, dive in and break down the numbers. Joining us is Karen Ubelhart. Uh, Karen's a senior industrials analyst from Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us live in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Karen, thanks for being with us. So I know you've covered this name forever. Let's just call it a long time. What do you think is going on here with CAT? Is it just the time in the cycle for them and there's not much they can do or have they missed something? Uh, you know, I think the surprise is how fast uh, some of the markets are deteriorating, like China. I think people expected that 2019 was going to be a slower year, but we'd still see some growth. And in fact, Asia was down and China was down in the fourth quarter, which was the big surprise. Um, I'd say that things are unraveling a little quicker than people expected, certainly. And, and uh, I thought they would come in kind of close to consensus for next year. And they came in, well, their, their first pass at next year is much lower than consensus. So there are a couple of points that came as a surprise. First, they really identified foreign exchange fluctuations as a serious uh, headwind. I, I'm struggling with that one because I thought that they hedged these things. Isn't that something that you kind of gird against and, and things didn't really fluctuate that much? So what was that about? Uh, well, they, they do hedge um, a portion of the, you know, the, the um, known contracts they do, but you can still have translation uh, adjustments you don't, uh, don't expect. Um, I think that wasn't as, it was a bigger than expected piece, but it's really the demand side that's troublesome. Um, construction equipment was only up 8%. It's been up double digits for a while. And again, the, that was um, driven by China, but other markets are slowing like Europe. And the incremental margins were terrible in construction. Um, that's been the story for CAT, that they've been able to really bring a lot down to the bottom line because of their um, cost cutting and pricing and other things. But it sounds like the headwinds and costs were larger than expected too. So. How's the American farmer doing? Uh, well, you know, they're doing okay, but but um, they're losing, they've lost a lot of demand from uh, China, number one, and uh, from Mexico as well. And because of the tariffs and the trade wars, and South America is very happy to uh, take the demand. And so... Interestingly, they're, they, they're they haven't become more pessimistic. However, you know, demand for some of their core products are weaker. What about the increase in credit losses? That was um, a surprise for me, and I actually found that later when I was going through the 30-page um, release. Uh, reserves, they, they took a bigger um, credit loss and lowered um, raised their reserves for problems in their power business, power finance. They finance big capital equipment. Um, that has um, been... Uh, troublesome all year, but it the the up in reserves was much larger than expected, and that cost them about a dime, I think. Yeah, but, but what does that tell you, right? I mean, it do we, do we have a sense? Yeah. Do we have a sense of what regions this was from? Do we have a sense of yeah. you know which companies, which borrowers are not yeah. paying? Yeah, my 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 um my <laughs> sense is it's emerging markets. Um, they have mentioned they did mention Latin America earlier in the year. Um, it's not the power power like GE. It's um, standby power. It's um, primary um, electricity for you know emerging markets where they don't have big grids and um, that's big capital equipment. CAF finances it. Um, and they're having some trouble with uh, some of the customers, and we'll get a lot more color on that. It, that happened um, in mining a couple years ago um, with Latin America customers. Um, they, this is long, you know, five-year financing. You know, in this case, a lot longer. And uh, there, some people aren't, some customers aren't able to pay their bills. So, what historically, if, if we are towards the end of the cycle, and what kind of what did 
big companies like Caterpillar whose customers make, these are big purchases for them. They're long-term purchases for them and they finance them, as you mentioned. I mean, what can a company like Caterpillar do in the face of what looks like slowing demand from two of their bigger regions, Europe and China? Is this something, can they cut costs? What do they do? What's what's interesting is um, they've been done a major restructuring over the last several years, and they have cut costs a lot, um, but they're going to have to take another round when volume comes down. A lot of that was structural. Now, as volume comes down, they're going to have to lay off people. They're going to have to, you know, uh, cut more costs. Um, and they're pretty good at that, but in the first couple of quarters when demand turns down, they can't get ahead of the curve. So you could see some, you know, bad numbers for a quarter or two until they catch up. So I'm looking right now at John Deere. Uh, their, their credit default swaps surging the most in 10 months is the cost to, to, to mm-hmm. protect against a default uh, on, from, from losses on its debt. Also, you're seeing shares fall more than 2%. Mm-hmm. Are they going to face the same issues? How widespread do you think that the Caterpillar's pain will be? Well, you know, um, historically, Deere uh, was, you know, 80% construction, I mean, 80% ag, but they did a big acquisition in Europe and they're now a third construction machinery. So that's why it's being pulled down because it's a bigger part of deer now. And yes, they'll be impacted as well. What can what do these big industrial companies do when demand does turn down in terms of trying to compensate their shareholders, you know, protect their stock price. I mean, where is Caterpillar now in terms of buybacks and what can they do? What do you expect them to do? Uh, they've they've accelerated their buybacks. Their cash flow has been exceptionally strong. Um, several years ago, we were worried about that and they've been coining cash for the last two years and they accelerated buybacks. They can do that to cushion the blow some, but, you know, when it when a cycle turns down, you kind of get out of the way of these stocks and, you know, because uh, they can't really offset with buybacks. Karen Ubelhart, thank you so much for spending time. We know you've got a crazily busy day as you parse through these results, and we'll be listening in on the earnings call. Karen Ubelhart is industrials analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.